Hello, my name is Michael Albert, and I am the host of the podcast that's titled Revolution Z. This is our 158th episode, and this time I'm going to address something from the past. In 2005, which means nearly 17 years ago, I wrote an article about a trip I had taken shortly before. That article is going to provide the main material for this episode of Revolution Z. The lessons from that trip have had a significant effect on my thinking, so I thought recounting them again, roughly as I did 15 years ago, might prove valuable for Revolution Z's audience. So on the trip, I had spent a week in Buenos Aires, Argentina, learning about Argentina's workers' movement to recuperate factories. I was there to give some talks. At that time, recent corporate globalization had inspired a severe economic downturn in Argentina. Workers confronted disaster when their capitalist workplaces often went bankrupt. To preserve income and to avoid possible starvation, workers in failing plants in certain cases decided to recuperate, that was the word they used, to recuperate their workplaces back into viable businesses, despite the capitalist owner being unable to make a go of it. Ignoring state opposition, aggressive competition, old equipment, and failed demand, workers took over roughly 190 failing plants. In each occupied workplace, we were told during our visit, not only had the capitalist owner left the operation, but so too did prior professional and conceptual employees, including managers and engineers. The privileged employees felt that their prospects would be better served if they looked elsewhere rather than clinging to a failing operation. But the unskilled and rote workers had to recuperate their failing workplace or suffer unemployment. To date, the Argentine occupations, we were told by a highly conscious organizer in the movement, and I quote him, have not been acts of ideology, and they have not followed a revolutionary plan. They have been instead, quote, acts of desperate self-defense. In other words, things were failing, and we were defending ourselves. Yet most interestingly, provocatively, and inspirationally, after taking over a company, which usually required a struggle of many months to overcome political resistance from the state, and after then running the plants for a time, the recuperation projects became increasingly visionary. On the trip, in addition to hearing about the overall situation of the workplace recuperation movement, I visited an occupied hotel, ice cream plant, glass factory, and slaughterhouse, all recuperated by their prior manual, obedient, unskilled, and in most cases, barely educated, and sometimes even illiterate workforce. In each of these plants, ranging in size from about 80 to about 500 employees, as in all other plants recuperated by worker actions, the workers quickly established a workers' council as the decision-making body. In such councils, each worker got one vote, a majority rule established overarching workplace policies. Workers called the process self-management, and each plant decided its own norms and relations. Almost immediately, in most of the occupied plants, quote, workers leveled all salaries to the same hourly pay rate. Workplaces that varied from this egalitarianism tended to allow, quote, slightly higher wages for those involved in the workplace longer and, some, and somewhat lower wages for those just coming aboard. Also, a discussion typically took place about incentives. What type should they use? In what mix? Some workplaces opted to pay more for conceptual and managerial labor. Others paid more for more demanding and debilitating work. 
Most stuck with equal pay rates for all, however, at least initially. All began wondering, how can they best have equity, quote, but also have incentives to induce hard work, end quote. Even where more onerous work wasn't paid more, which was most places, we were told, there was much concern that people who were now stuck in rote positions should have, quote, opportunities and be educated to do more interesting work. And there was also a reduced tendency to refuse to share knowledge, because everyone saw general advances being in everyone's interest, not just in an owner's interest, as in the past, at least at the beginning. In all the recuperated plants, although we were told certain tasks having to do with specifically capitalist control proved to be, quote, no longer relevant, we were also told, quote, many other organizational, managerial, and otherwise empowering tasks previously done by professionals still needed to be accomplished by the remaining workers. A subset of the workers, we were told, had thus taken up doing the vacated tasks, including sometimes having to become literate as a prerequisite. When I asked organizers whether there was a division of labor in workplaces like that found in capitalist corporations, with about a fifth of employees doing mostly or even only empowering and more pleasant labor, and with four-fifths doing mostly or even only rote repetitive and more onerous labor, including the former group dominating the latter group by setting agendas, dominating debate, and otherwise establishing its will, the answers I got agreed that this difference between more empowered and more rote workers existed, and then talked about the need to induce the more rote workers to participate more, not only in wage discussions, but in other discussions too. The answers didn't at first acknowledge that a structural impediment, not just old habits, were interfering with participation. But press further, the organizers did agree that old divisions of labor countered egalitarian impulses. But the only solution they offered was for additional manual workers to learn to do managerial jobs. They failed to note or to acknowledge that there wouldn't be enough such jobs to go around unless there was a change in the component tasks of jobs so that everyone had a share of empowering tasks. In the ice cream plant we visited, there were only two women workers. One was the treasurer. Asked what her class was, she at first didn't understand the query, wondering what we could possibly have in mind, but then realized we meant what we meant and said, of course, I'm a worker, like all others. To her, this was elementary. My question was as ridiculous as if I had asked what gender she was. Beyond feeling like all the rest of the workers, being paid like all the rest of the workers, and having one vote like all the rest of the workers, it turned out, supporting her incredulity, that this treasurer also spent only half of each day dealing with finances and records. The other half of each day she worked on the assembly line. However, her situation was not typical. Questions repeatedly revealed that retaining some old work while doing some new, more empowering tasks wasn't the only or even always the most typical job pattern for getting managerial assignments done. Rather, there were often people who did more conceptual tasks as their whole job without spending any time in assembly or other rote work. More, most people in the recuperated factories continued to do only their old jobs without taking up any new empowering aspects. Most people, in other words, still spent hour upon hour doing deadening, repetitive labor, though now in a very new context. Asked if she earned different pay than other workers, the treasurer assembler said, 
Quote, no, I have the same pay, why would my pay be any different? End quote. In further discussion, this woman and others in the ice cream plant, and at other plants we visited later too, told us that, quote, while workers aren't docked for laziness or rewarded for greater pay for greater effort, anyone who slacks off comes before the whole council and is set right. Likewise, we were also told that under the auspices of, of the whole council, there had been firings for, quote, alcoholism, violence, etc. In short, Pretty much universally in the occupied plants, workers had to measure up to their workmate satisfaction, which in practice seemed to mean that people had to do their jobs competently and contribute effort commensurate to their capacities as these were understood by the whole council. In short, with workers in charge, you either carried your weight in accord with your capacities or you heard about it. When asked whether she was somehow different than other workers, or whether other workers could also do the financial work she was so proud of handling, the treasurer said, sure, others could do it. Everyone else we asked also said, yes, of course everyone could do financial tasks, or in any case, everyone could do some tasks of a conceptual sort. But when we asked why only she and two other people in her workplace did treasury work, while most workers in her ice cream factory still did only rote and repetitive tasks, neither the treasurer nor any other worker we queried thought this overall division was a failing, at least before being asked about it. We are all workers, they said. We are all friends. We all share the joys and benefits of our shared effort. As long as they worked hard, gave their all, and had equal income, they didn't seem to feel it made a major difference who did that work. But it is important to remember, while we were welcome to talk to any employees, it was without exception employees who were doing the more empowering jobs that we were, indeed, able to talk to. In longer interviews, activists involved in the movement who were carefully watching its evolution all agreed that a persistent division between more and less empowered workers was problematic, and something to overcome lest it undo other gains they believed in but they offered no specific plan for how to accomplish such a change, and generally they indicated that a greater concern was being successful and keeping jobs. In the slaughterhouse we visited, beyond the subset of workers who did empowered labor, we were told that the full council of just under 500 workers had elected an eight-person board serving for daily administration. We met with these eight employees, who were all former rote repetitive workers, but were now doing only conceptual tasks, and also, beyond that, were voted to the board by the whole assembly. Their salary was unchanged by becoming board members, they reported to us. It had also been unchanged by their earlier graduating to doing more conceptual and empowering work. We watched squeamishly the slaughterhouse assembly line dismantling cows, with each worker on the line doing a single cutting motion over and over, the sum total being the cutting of the cow into parts for later treatment. The workers' council had changed workplace conditions to the point where such assembly workers got much time off, spread through the day, to alleviate the stress and strain of their constant repetitive motions. The council hadn't, however, redesigned the slaughterhouse technology to change the actual tasks to be less repetitive and debilitating, nor had it even thought about doing so, as best we could determine from our discussions. The glass factory we visited also had equal wages for all, and a governing council of employees who called themselves workers while also doing entirely managerial and planning functions.
We watched rote workers tending furnaces and carrying hot glass from station to station and learned that they got a half hour off for each hour spent scurrying in the heat to match the speed of assembly. This was a big change from the capitalist past, as was, of course, the equalization of all pay rates and the presence of previously rote workers doing conceptual and empowered tasks. When I asked in this glass factory whether the men and women carrying the glass and tending the furnaces could do more conceptual and less onerous work for part of their day, everyone said, quote, of course they could. Every effort was made to permit people to change jobs, to learn new skills, etc. Especially since, quote, since we now know everyone is capable of it. And it was clearly true that this was their intent, at least up to the limits of the roles imposed by the existing division of labor. Sitting with board members of the glass factory, I asked what would happen if they went to the whole council and said they wanted higher pay due to their carrying heavy responsibilities or having more knowledge. They laughed and said, we would be removed from our positions and back on the line. I said, okay, but what if you do more conceptual and skilled work for the next five years? Might you not then get higher wages for being more critical to daily operations, more knowledgeable? providing more leadership at council meetings, etc. The council president laughed and said, well, yes, that might happen, and it would be nice, wouldn't it? In longer interviews, we discovered that indeed at council meetings, the workers who were doing the empowering tasks, those who were the treasurers, etc., did set the agendas, chair the sessions, and provide nearly all critical information over and over. Perhaps the most surprising interchange was with the elected president of the glass factory and a couple of other workers who were present as well. I asked whether they thought workers in other more successful plants that were still under the auspices of owners would emulate the recuperation movement's accomplishments and seek to take over and run their profitable plants too, seeking to self-management them and to thereby make them dignified as well as to share their rewards equitably. With no hesitation at all, the empowered workers said no. They explained that workers in successful plants would fear that to occupy and run their workplaces would diminish rather than improve their conditions, in addition to fearing being fired or repressed if their uprising failed. They said that prior to actually fighting for and winning control over their work lives, they didn't realize what a difference it would make to their fulfillment to not have profit-seeking bosses. They were quite adamant that their current commitment to the new way of operating depended for its origin and its power on their having had to fight for the failing plant the capitalist owners had left to them to run it in order to survive, but that their commitment didn't exist before that. I asked, quote, if I tomorrow opened a plant down the road and offered to hire you to work there at twice the pay you were getting here, but also told you that you would have to work for me and my managers, would you do it? They laughed and told me, quote, you would need to shoot us, literally, to get us to leave our self-managed glass plant to work at a capitalist plant of any kind at any pay rate. So, I asked, why couldn't you convey that lesson to your friends working elsewhere and thereby motivate them to seek change too? They shrugged. They didn't see it as likely. Worse, it wasn't on their agenda. Overall, the most striking and inspiring thing about these factories was the worker's spirit. Their harsh workplaces, having collapsed under capitalist tutelage and having utilized outdated or failed technologies, were recuperated into success, and the workers were proud of that achievement. The new success that the former owner couldn't attain 
clearly rested in part on diminishing costs by eliminating inflated and managerial professional salaries, but no doubt also on increased worker effort due to workers no longer resisting control from above, but instead feeling the workplace was theirs. Workers were clearly enjoying not only good wages, but improved conditions and status. And above all, they were operating with a degree of dignity and pride, as well as with a level of mutual concern and solidarity. This spiritual gain was palpable everywhere we visited, but so regrettably was the disinclination to try for more. Among the plants, we heard that there were even collective funds established to aid newly recuperated firms' initial efforts by transferring startup aid from more established firms to initially struggling ones. We were told there was also the beginning of attention to trying to transact with one another beyond market competition, guided instead by social values and solidarity. But when queried further, workers in the occupied plants also reported that whether they liked it or not, they had to compete for market share. At first this was horribly difficult, they said, as other firms buying their intermediate goods shied away, but in time they were able to, quote, keep costs down, provide quality output, and go out and get customers. It was clear in discussing all this, however, that market competition had powerful influence over the scope of decisions the self-managing workers could undertake. Workers' councils couldn't initiate too much improvement in conditions, lest other firms with managers would inflict speed up and cut costs to outcompete them. This deadening effect of markets hadn't yet reversed the workers' humane inclinations, but it was clearly a break on their enlargement and was already slowing down humane innovations. I don't see how anyone, no matter what prior expectations and orderings they might bring with them, could look at these Argentine-occupied plants and deny the chief lessons they teach. Capitalist society horribly underutilizes most people by providing them only rote and repetitive labor and stifling their confidence, creativity, and initiative until they feel that repetitive, obedient labor is all they should or could be doing. This is called education, but it is really degradation. Argentina's recuperated factory movement shows that in a matter of months, even after being slogged and flailed their whole lives through, even when they are barely literate or are illiterate, working people can take up tasks supposedly beyond their ken and accomplish them honorably and effectively. Likewise, Argentina's occupied factories display the powerful, spontaneous desire of people who haven't been socialized into elitist mindsets to earn equitably and to apportion power fairly, rather than dominate or be dominated. Beyond those key lessons, however, different people will likely see different things when viewing Argentina's occupied factories. I saw, for example, that without changing the division of labor so that all workers equally share conceptual and empowering tasks, even the profoundly egalitarian and participatory impulses of these factories would tend to decline and be overcome. If a relatively few employees, even originating from the shop floor of each workplace, even if they were freely voted to their higher positions, rose to do all the empowering tasks, while the rest of the workers stayed mired in only repetitive tasks as earlier, in time the few doing empowered labor would dominate council discussions, set meeting agendas, and impose their will regarding policies. They would begin seeing themselves as more responsible, more important, more creative they would begin seeing the more rote workers as less important and stunted. At best, they might feel kind of paternalistic toward those below. At worst, they might feel kind of superior and dismissive toward those below. 
In time, they would reward themselves with greater salaries and benefits. In short, despite initially almost universal egalitarian intentions, employees set off from other workers by a division of labor that gives a few employees more status, knowledge, skill, and confidence than those left doing only rote labor would become what they had sincerely sought to eliminate, a new dominant class. This time, however, not of owners, but of empowered employees, or what I call coordinators. In any event, again, ruling workers from above. And market competition would only propel these trends. Argentina's defensive workplace projects, growing in number each month, each started with no owners and no coordinator class of empowered workers. They also started with a tremendous desire not only to succeed as businesses, but to share their benefits of success equitably via equitable pay rates, improved conditions, democratic decision-making, and recallable officials. But if the old corporate division of labor persists in these recuperated plants, it seemed clear that all the desirable innovations would in time depend on goodwill and humane aspirations that would continually buck up against and be relentlessly eroded by the structural difference between the few doing empowering work and the many doing rote work, as well as by competitive pressures to cut costs. On the other hand, it also seemed evident that if the workers became as self-conscious about everyone doing a fair share of the empowering labor as they were about equalizing pay rates, then their aspirations for classlessness would not only reside in their hearts, but would also be structurally propelled by a new division of labor which would facilitate and advance rather than erode their gains. The problem of the market and the broader economy would still remain, even in that more helpful case. Understanding the market's debilitating implications for each workplace and seeing what kinds of changes could reduce those ills and in time finally order in a new allocation relations in place of markets would also need to become a priority for a movement that would transcend present relations. Beginning to counter market pressures would also be a key to reversing what seemed to us the least admirable feature of the Argentine movement its insularity in each firm and the workers' seeming lack of desire to address non-recuperated forms by demanding changes in them too. Finally, it was disturbing to hear workers describe how if they had been employed in successful plants, they would not have sought to run them as they would in that case have been, not have been pushed by necessity and would also not have understood the debits of their position and the possibilities of liberation. It sounded like evidence someone might offer on behalf of vanguard organizing by an enlightened few who would drag along the unenlightened many, even against their lack of awareness and inclination. But remember, it came from the newly empowered employees, not from those doing the rote work. The only rebuttal, I think, would be to argue that we should simply reject the elitist solution as being contrary to our broader goals, and we should require instead that movements figure out how to inspire and support action in successful firms as well as in collapsed ones, and how to do this not via a top-down process that would lead forward in ways preserving class division, but by a participatory process that would generate activism consistent with classlessness. The lesson, it seemed to me, was that we not only have to beat capitalists, we have to attain for whole economies true and full self-management. How might an opponent of such a comprehensive changes react to all this? They would deny the capacity to do balanced jobs. They would deny that getting rid of owners wasn't enough. My inclination is to think 
they're wrong. People have a capacity to do balanced jobs, and I would like to tell one story bearing upon that. In one of those plants, the glass plant, I was sitting and talking to a woman who was doing the accounting for the plant. I asked her how that came about, and she said, uh, with a translator actually, she said that as they were beginning their work, as they were taking over the plant, there was a need for somebody to do it, and she volunteered. I said, okay, um, what was the hardest thing to learn? You were had previously been working uh, uh, at the glass furnace and now you're going to work in an office and you're going to be doing completely different tasks what was the hardest thing to learn and just to be clear about that she was working at a furnace and she showed it to me and it, 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 it was beyond my comprehension that somebody could work standing in front of that open furnace all day long but she did day after day day after day day after day year after year and now she was the accountant and I guess the chief financial officer so I asked again what was the hardest thing to learn and she didn't want to tell me I tell this story over and over because it had such an impact on me I said well was it to learn accounting concepts no was it to learn how to use a spreadsheet no was it to learn how to communicate the the results of the analysis no and I came up with a couple of other things I can't remember and I finally asked look please really you gotta tell me I don't understand what was the most difficult thing to learn on the road to becoming financial accountant that you are. And she said, first I had to learn how to read. So much for the idea that working people can't do balanced jobs. Even an illiterate person enduring grotesque circumstances year after year was able to learn how to do the finances for this business that had been failing when headed by a capitalist owner and professional managers. The Argentine trip had a big, experience, a big effect on me. It had a big effect on those who were with me at the time, Lydia uh, primarily, and a, and a friend, Ezekiel, who was showing us around. Um, I hope that the story and the uh, recounting of the experience has been meaningful for you. And that said, this is Michael Albert signing off until next time for Revolution Z.